Radio Boise, in collaboration with The Modern Hotel, presents Campfire Stories, readings by notable local authors recorded live from the patio at The Modern Hotel in downtown Boise. Tonight, um, the first reader is going to be Laura Rogar, who I know quite well from working with her at the cabin, um, where she has been running the summer camps, a series where she teach this summer, when where I teach um, during, you know, sort of the school year every once in a while, but also... These great kids, like I've taught these uh, Urban Ink kids the last, uh, I don't know, two months, three or four sessions, and just how Laura cares about these kids and how she actually treats her employees there, if you will, the people she sort of guides into these camps, is like so generous and so kind, and she's just, you know, a wonderful writer who actually, you know, I've just gotten to read her work over the last, like, three or four weeks, and I had heard good things about it. Carrie Webster actually said, you should get Laura to read, and so we did. Um, and she has this wonderful chapbook called Sister House, Sorority Poems, that I wanted to read a short little excerpt from here in a second, but I want to let you guys know she actually teaches at Boise State as well. She has her MA, she's in the MFA program now. And the writing to me that she does, it kind of blends the abstract with the very concrete and this very earnest you know, look at the self. And so this, this poem from her um, chapbook, the beginning part of the poem is just kind of this splaying out of, I don't know, something super personal with the, you know, strange abstract that we can all relate to. I feel like it kind of captures that, so I'll read this real quick. And, uh, Orexis, is that how you pronounce it? That's how I'm going to pronounce it. It's from Sister House. The only pornographies I want to see star me, preferably mouthing me or with fingers than me watching. My black makeup eyes are super green variations, parakeets, candel, blot the lens, blue-green, a light in plaster molding to look at me. So, on that note, I'll give you Laura. Hi. Thank you, Christian, that was so nice. Um, and thank you, Modern, for having us here. I'm going to begin by reading, I feel really loud. Is my volume okay? Um, I'm going to begin by reading some work from a new manuscript I've been working on called Turkey Pardon. Um, so I'll get going now. Turkey Pardon. I deign to be at the fairgrounds where productive udders are airing near tents that let you pay to see these fantastic and exemplarily bred beasts. Very decorated chickens and peafowl the super high horse, the morbidly pig, here with ribbons of this language that makes us a kind, us aggressively special, and I too have made a beautiful egg to submit. I have three. Three stains. In my sheets, the smirch of brown times gluey oozing. On the street, a cop made blot of curbed head. Garnet me always wanting to not shine on meat, a warm crust of butter and pan. Four sounds like death sounds, unlucky. Hello, Mama. Hello, Minnie. Hi, Mr. Bled Eye. Come in. This is my big skin of what desire is or might be like. I do. I do have hobbies I like to do. I like to get real high and clean while you sleep. Mime, my funny doff to you, sir. 
that eats the wing curtsy for you. My rose genuflection to you, Mom. My black doff to the moon. 1990. Every pore, the water, my well father, when he came out of the pool into which they had thrown him and with his soaking wet flight suit clinging to him saw his supremely muscled form outlined. He chose the shape he had had. A voice off the coast, his mouth, the gap between enough for me like a mountain, us can in fact be climbed. Plinth. Be an animal. When shoulder bones look very small as a ribs erect necklace as flesh spot grasp at procedure, pray. Invert your skull while words need an object and you are. Introduce seed, the love bucket. It's not volitional, but it is something you could be grateful for. Remember, this plinth you stand on dryly is water in a cistern made of water and it is futile to dip and scoop yours up into some erect form. While what's wet hovers already above the young because they want and do not yet work, women because they control words, not yours but gifts passing, say privilege to make possible witness. Remember skin, touching skin. Remember contact has been called by them contagion while others sew a pelted quilt against this singing. No coin, no coins go in where coins go in. And there, our sirens counting time, signed, I to his laborer, I to love the president. 1998. Coco, who has spent some time watching his neighborhood, hugs Mr. Rogers to her fur, unzips his cardigan, removes his shoes, and Dr. Penny's here too with Coco being real, with Mr. Rogers' mouth agape. Like you, I'm most at home in the doorway of my cage. Me portrait to master in gem state. No more burning snakes for me, no more sagebrush blue, no more pumpkin laugh for me, no more calico throat. No more two curved lines in weeds, sir. Paint me purest sound of cold. The basic sound, you're gonna miss me when I'm single threading plain. Narco Corrido. The text is a picture of Nick with very many jars of amber oil. He's THC to this AM, smiling. The text is a wall-high mountain of marshmallow and rice krispies to never be tasted by poor kids and rich dudes we don't have to meet. The text is a huge, funny cookie, many laughs, macaroni, and in-time gynecomastic breasts pressing lightly into thumbs on the controller in the wet blue glow of flat screen where the static pasture is selling cells. Broke Dunmare, broke blue roan, very cowy. Pastoral. Okay, here's gray skins gotten wet. Here's a goose and here's geese. Managed water and the lawn a collared kitty wants to cross. The sky buckets incontinent sacks of lead wheat ink across the weak, weak lamp we want shining. What kind of black bags this taken up by me, itchy to shoulder some big thing bulging lumps of angled meat I might become? responsible for having used up the gray scrim of daylight to read. 
Should it be that I receive these treats as meant to eat? Or should it be me, scientist of all possible rotting? Worms should be me to mix a balm, me to paste a fix. But I have fixed on walking toward that fatly purple mountain on the left side. Yay, that's the crypt side. So wait, wait, stay for a bit with my sack. It's plastic stretching tautly silver to continue to contain the elbows it contains. Think about rain. To jewel its back in trepidation thick in your fingers pinched at the mouth in the moment before its open becomes involved in the mountain's shadow. In the room where all the laughing guys are like, you can't harvest beets from a toilet seat and even though we do do this exact thing, we do use shit of meat to cultivate the fruit we eat. I take the point that not everything matters like me and someone not thought possible is crying at times there is blood on gross and it belonged to meat and sometimes it's wiped off clean the bag promises some of us will get to desire a stab at being seen there was a real bag in life there was a man had it walking away i did not get a look in his face like the lord scandalized by the bondsman who looked back in his eyes directly, Adam. Vestigiality. I was small and he was holding my whole body against him. I was standing up and he was squatting low to force our faces into waves. He was repeating, the ocean is your mother as she slapped us, he was joking. The water is cold. I scapulae burrow into chest fur. I rub sunscreen on his crown. This is just a Wikipedia page. Partial list of turkeys pardoned. 2002, George W. Bush pardoned the first ever female turkey in the ceremony, Katie, a 30-pound bird bred by Ron Prestage, chairman of the National, National Turkey Federation, as well as alternate bird Zach. The turkeys were named after Prestige's children, 2003. Bush pardoned stars and backup stripes, 2004. Bush pardoned biscuits and backup gravy. 2005, Bush pardoned marshmallow and alternate bird yam raised in Henning, Minnesota. Beginning in 2005, pardoned birds were sent to Disneyland to live and serve as the honorary grand marshal of that year's Thanksgiving Day Parade. 2006, Bush pardoned flyer and alternate bird fryer raised in Missouri, 2007. Bush pardoned 45 pound May and backup flower raised in Indiana. 2008, Bush pardoned 45 pound vice turkey named pumpkin after the number one turkey, pecan, fell ill the night before the ceremony. Both turkeys were allowed to live. 2009, Barack Obama pardoned Courage, a 45-pound turkey provided by the National Turkey Federation, an alternate bird Carolina raised in North Carolina. 2010, Obama pardoned Apple, an alternate bird cider. Both had died of natural causes by Thanksgiving 2011. 2011, Obama pardoned a 45-pound turkey named Liberty and an alternate bird named Peace, both of which were raised in Wilmar, Minnesota. Peace survived until shortly before Thanksgiving 2012 when he was euthanized. Liberty survived until being euthanized April 26, 2013, at the age of two. 2012, Obama pardoned Cobbler and Gobbler, both 40-pound turkeys from Rockingham County, Virginia. Gobbler died suddenly in February 2013. Cobbler was euthanized on August 22nd of that year. 2013, Obama pardoned Popcorn, a 38-pound turkey from Badger, Minnesota. 
Popcorn won an online contest over its identically sized stablemate Caramel, which was also spared. Demeter. With sheaves and poppies in her hands, showed me her feet, and they were feet, about the burden of having them. Showed me her green eyes where mine blinked their worse than killing lust. Showed me one golden ear and asked that I join her humble action, I to live by her protection. I do. Her winnowed spike punctures under my nail, and I feel a joke. I was always joking. Rise. In light, I turn my face up to face her. I offer my ribboned hand to her. I ask if she's wanting to drink. She hears me and does not smile. She of the black world in this world, she which carries on blowing, still watching my dumb blood dye the harvest pink. To the author talking. Uh, writing's not magic. It's language, which is amazing, and it's being many beetles of the same earth as dirt and grass and feathers, being traded, changing shapes of cheek and brain. Of course, we want to make this a maximally habitable space. Wanting, I think, to be free, but not from magic, rather to view most purchased, view 100, view prices low to high. Read dirt. To touch earth, use hands. To touch whatever unclean things you should not have sat in office impotently noodling this last half hour. Should instead have gone aggressively home to be dying with the birds busy dying there, most alive of all contents of any room. To be hygienic, use a carrot to clean your fingernails. Use a turnip or a carrot, a baby will do. City. On this pier, it's spring, too far up to touch water, a ferry full of people coming in. My Mr. Rogers statuette watches a tent a man is singing in, and I am in his tent, Seba me air. Regarding a red cock that's riven with divots, and in them white cheese I can see. In our white curds of cheese I see thinking, these are those new tonsilliths for me. I pick my scalp. In Seldon's air, the man comes back to. He comes with the day they're calling gold, that being a name for light I don't need to apologize for. Its skin is this poem I blow on and on. Uh, the next thing that I will read for you is an erasure project. Um, and I started it as a gift. I do this often if I'm sort of feeling emptied out from writing. I will paint out books, right? So looking for language that's already present. Um, and the book uh, was a gift from my buddy. It's called Be Happy. It's like a 70s book of aphorisms and quotes, um, pictures of happy white people in nature. And the weird thing about this book is just total collage, right? There's like Katherine Hepburn next to Jesus, next to Sydney or Jane Austen. They're all just jumbled. Um, but there was this consistent theme of effort and work that really interests me. So there's seven parts. For Charlie. One, without reckoning up the account, I always did. Mend the eye first. It creeps on its hands and knees like the lays of a pool the whole facial bloom swims on. Ruly light, holding small, the common bow. Two, 
the Beatitudes of Jesus. Blessed are the heirs that mourn the hall. Blessed me in the ears ill stain. Blessed all in heat, all, all called children cute for the kingdom. All, all gainly for my sake as your word of work. Three, living. This has an epigraph. Um, we have no more right to consume happiness without producing it than to consume wealth without producing it. It's George Bernard Shaw. To touch lips, to fondle tightly, to watch the West without getting to vent the present. About seven months ago, I got a house and a head viz myself in a supreme degree, indispensable and more than I can use. Our will have probed a station in desperate haste in such desperate enterprises, apace with that fine rented drummer, however far away. For miracles, I know houses, the feet of a summer forenoon, the exquisite, delicate, thin curve of new ring. These to me refer to me, every cubic inch of the earth spread with me, every foot swarms with continual men. Five reward. O oh, wed unbroken love to the slurring record. A poor man shall make thee rich, a sick man shall make thee strong. It comes incidentally, make it the object of a sleep pursuit. A lead goose we find we have caught without dreaming it. What constitutes a well-spent love? It comes twenty years hence by the memory, the apple-shaped we of something grand. Six, nobility. Action may not always bring happiness, but there is no action. Good in our fancies, who so kingly each light meet justice, the wing of the sparrow for the children of men. In the pages of story, ill courtship, all honor, make gains latch like fishes in nets. Good lies not in gaining, just in doing, and doing against the early jot of our worth whatever birth. The perfume you cannot pour is your habit, a byproduct of effort to make someone's good account a running stream. Seven, the man. The haunts are unaccountable, but I have often seen her among little children and in country houses without sauce like a dry creek bed who signifies belief in your right spring. The joys I have possessed often change. The secret interests I have discovered lurk in cornfields and factories, hover over the conscious child, look sorrowfully away. No real or safe hobby, precious fence. Outside may be beetles or flies, lips or irises, fish mountaineering, anything so long as he straddles and rides it hard. So the last piece I'll read is way newer than I would normally read, but it, um, I wrote it at the cabin, so I thought I could plug the cabin while I do my reading. Um, the cabin is a literary nonprofit in Boise, and during the summer we um, host camps where local writers teach their craft to students. Um, and the poet Adrian Keene gave his students a prompt this summer, um, which is a litany or list on the idea I want to save. So I wrote one too. I want to save these prolific walnuts, 
I want to save Granny and Marooned in Gone Surf. I want to save Furs and Acacias with their new canoes for beetles. I want to save Peonies, not really the flower, and not this tattoo of it. I want to save Spiders forever three steps from me silently lying. I want to save Plover and prime space for Plover action. I want to save babies waddle fatly on sand. I want to save my dad's flaccid sprung rubber spear gun aspect in ocean with tubes that wind lazy in the kelp lit by the glint of naked tip not yet folded back into custody of hand. I want to save their method of intervention in trees by braces of lumber. I want to save Margot, so I'll clip her grown rogue beak. I want to save feathers in case it gets colder. I want to save my brother's good eye from the sun's calcifying scream. I want to save my, at the same time, I want to uncurl my sticky fingers and turn the palm down. I want to save mammals in space to grow more. I want to save funereal elephants and their girls. I want to save this air of separation and the water returned. I want to save the flash of eyes of cats who would not heed walls. I want to save the smell of your scalp after a few days. I want to save the feeling of being subject to change. I want to save these nude men eating sausage off a little raft. I want this sad Newfoundland perpetually three steps to my left to be resting. I want to save my children by keeping them in. I want to hang on to the good way of life. I want to save money. I want to save houses. I want to save time by efficiently filing. I want to save time by releasing obligation. I want to seed the lawn. I want to save horseshoes. I want to save water. I want to save pickling. I want to burn the ridge house. I want to save baby squat to poop from unseamed pants. I want to save all manner of defecation and guides who circle it with sticks. I want to save this image of your face in the sky's pink light. I want to save the cancer of this elegiac pitch to regift it to who bore us. I want to save this image of your breathing. I just can't wait. Thanks. So Laura will answer a few questions if you have them, or she will field comments if you have them as well. So. I would start by asking, perhaps, yes, like, you know, critiques of the poem. They're fantastic, though, so good. And I, I want to know, I mean, first of all, just the very personal stuff, you know, blended with the more abstract concept. I mean, what, how do you mush those together and make them actually, a, a, you know, a beautiful, you know, sort of piece of poetry? I'll start with that, and I'll sit down, and you guys. Yeah, that's a big, thank you. Um, I don't know, I, I think I do start my work with like some kind of personal bugbear, right? Like it's usually linked to some language that's bothering me, but that's because of experience too. Um, so then the poem becomes like a processing machine for that experience. I don't know. Are there other questions? On, on my phone. I mean, not exclusively, not even mostly, but I've been writing on my phone a lot. Um, I walk places, so Sometimes that's like the motion of the steps or something will cook it up. Um, I also try to wake up early, which happens maybe 20% of the time. So I can have an hour at desk. Like the most poetry I've ever written in one day. Oh, that's a good question. I think when I was procrastinating my MA thesis project, I wrote quite a bit every day. Yeah, maybe like two or three poems a day. Um, that's probably maxed out, right? It's so crazy. 
Oh, why the tur why the turkeys? I I uh, predicted someone might ask me that question, and I don't know. I don't have a great answer. I think um, birds have this magnificent um, human history as a symbol for soul, right? But we're always looking at the flyers, like swallows and sparrows. Um, and I kind of am interested in the fat ones that can't get up. Um, I think I was also interested in the sort of spectacle of presidential pardon, like um, how on surface it's so funny and silly, um, but we haven't, it's not really like a legendary part of US history. We've only been doing it from 1989 or something. And uh, underneath it, I don't know, I think there's something dark that needs to be examined there. Like why are we using um, sort of this ceremony of clemency or mercy to pardon animals that are gonna get eaten? Um, I think it's an, a valid question. Because I just read you a Wikipedia page. Okay, so the question is, how does my work interact with technology? Um, you know, it's not something I think about explicitly that often. It's something um, people that read my work say often, though. Um, and I think I am really interested in the tech, in the language texture we live in. So I do totally magpie stuff um, that I see online, like the words very cowie. Some guy was selling a horse on Craigslist with that. It's just like amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean, the internet's just this amazing language space, right? Yeah, Janet. Um, that's a tough question for me. I mean, I can tell you who I love to read. I love to read Alice Notley, I love to read Juan Wynn, um, Catherine Wagner, um, but I don't necessarily know that I write like them, and I think um, I always want to write like Sappho, but that's just a pipe dream, right? Good. Thanks, you guys, for listening. All right. Thanks, Laura. And we'll have a little, uh, I don't know, 20-minute break or so. Then John Rember will be up here actually reading a piece called Poetry Can Wait. So we'll find out his reasoning for that. But it's fiction. So anyway, yeah, enjoy the drinks Remy's making and the rest of them at the bar. And um, yeah, tip your servers, Ross. Remember that. Okay, folks, so we can all gather in here for Mr. John Rember. He'll be up here in just a moment. Um, I wanted to make a couple of announcements. I wanted to say that the Modern um, is doing a, an Idaho and, I guess, international film series um, in their rooms here. 29 Rooms is the, is the name of it, and they're actually taking submissions, I think, still are getting close to maybe closing that out, and if you happen to stay at the Modern, you'll be able to actually watch these films on Channel 39. There are actually 39 rooms here, so that's where the, uh, the title comes from, but um, that's something the Modern will be doing here, and then Rediscovered, we'll have this fellow who wrote the book, I Loved You More, a guy named Tom Spanbauer, August 29th, 6.30 at Rediscovered Books down on 8th Street, so they put on some great events down there, and they're a huge advocate for Oh, got indie, indie bookstores everywhere, and also here in Boise, they and um, Rediscovered, or excuse me, they and, uh, and Hyde Park Books do a great job. So I want to thank them for showing up tonight. 
Um, Mr. Rember, who's going to read, I've had the honor just to meet him for the first time this evening, though I've seen his name in bookstores like Rediscovered and via the Boise Weekly for some years now. I guess, I don't know how long you've been working for the Weekly, but your column or your, your article each week is, is a joy, for sure. Just, uh, he writes uh, fiction, nonfiction, journalism. Um, he's in, in, I'll call you old school Idaho, for sure. Grew, uh, grew up in um, Sun Valley and family near uh, Stanley and writes a lot about that in his uh, book, Trap Lines. Um, the, the piece he's going to read tonight is from his newest book of short stories called um, Sudden Death Over Time. And it's a, a story, as I mentioned, called Poetry Can Wait, which should run us about half an hour. Then he'll take some questions and would love to address, you know, issues of Idaho and of story writing and of just, you know, appreciating a place like this and an event like this and getting to come down here. I know he's a big fan of the modern and uh, Polly and Michael really wanted to have him down here and so we got him here. So thanks, John. Come on up and read. Thank you, Christian. Uh, we came down from Sawtooth Valley today. Uh, when we got up, the temperature was 42 degrees. Somewhere uh, on the other side of Garden Valley, the temperature on our car thermometer was 106 degrees. So um, we just had a 64 degree uh, swing there. And uh, it's very similar to the kind of swing we experience when we leave Sawtooth Valley and end up at the Modern. Um, anyway, it's very nice to see you. Uh, I can't think of a better audience than a modern audience. Um, thank you to Elizabeth. Um, thank you to all the crew at the Modern, and uh, we're very happy to be here. We are always happy to be here when we come to Boise. It's part of the good life in Boise. Sudden Death Over Time is nine dramatic monologues, all written in the first person, which gave me a chance to be nine different people while I was writing them. Um, some of them are rel relatively close to me. Some of them are uh, rather distant. I'll let you decide uh, at the end of the evening who this person is and what his re relation to me is. The story is called Poetry Can Wait. It puts all of you in the position of being in an academic committee room on an academic committee that <laughs> this particular academic committee only meets when things have gone terribly, terribly wrong. My name is Thomas Tombo. I'm a visiting assistant professor of psychology at this college and house sitter for Professor Veltzmertz, chair of the religion department, who is on sabbatical. Professor Tom Tom is what the students call me, but my mother called me Tom Tom from the start. She was the poet Alexandra Tombo, sun-kissed child muse to Nabokov and lover of Allen Ginsberg. Her careers as muse, lover, and poet were brief. 
You shouldn't feel bad if you haven't heard of her, although the critical literature on Ginsburg often mentions his heterodoxy. That was my mom. You should probably know that she sent me to nursery school in a tiny feathered headdress carrying a tiny tom-tom. When she had parties, she would wake me and pull me out from under the great pile of coats and hats and scarves on my bed, jam the headdress down over my eyes, and make me march around with my drum, beating time to laughter. That was before her methamphetamine psychosis and subsequent death in an ether explosion. <laughs> when social services took charge of my upbringing, they called me Tom Tom too. I was Tom Tom in junior high when the schoolyard bullies used my name as an excuse to thump on my head. In high school, Tom Tom somehow inspired my counselor to track me into theater costume management. It was not easy to get here standing before you as a PhD in psychology invited to explain myself. Professor Veltzmeritz, whose house I occupy, is in Thailand. He's in a forest temple in the south of the country studying Buddhism. That's the official story. He's really trying to dry out before you people, the esteemed members of the faculty judicial committee, vote to continue or discontinue his tenure at this institution. If the world's pain has been caused by desire, which Professor Veltzmeritz must know by now, his specific symptoms have been caused by the desire for high-end alcohol. Professor Veltzmeritz's basement contains an impressive collection of single malts and rare bourbons and a bottle of every brandy ever to come from a monastery. I am addressing the matter at hand. If you believe in cause and effect, and how could you sit in judgment on your fellow faculty members if you don't? Let's follow effect's delicate tracery back to cause. Yes, I was asked to sit on the English search committee by Dean Rizzo herself. Yes, the faculty handbook excludes visiting faculty from the search committees. And my current contract reads that under no circumstances will my employment extend beyond this academic year. But after first semester evaluations, Dean Rizzo explained that the non-renewal clause was only a formality. The students loved it when I dressed up as Tonto and psychoanalyzed the Lone Ranger in Hollywood Indian Patois. They loved the lecture on Erickson's Eight Stages of Man when I wore nothing but a diaper to show that we go out of this world pretty much as we come into it. The lecture on the psychology of evil I delivered as Henry Kissinger. And of course you remember the young, young Republican protesters who blocked the door to my classroom. Protesters who melted away when I showed up in the uniform and persona of General George Patton. All visiting professors are told their contract will not be renewed, Dean Rizzo told me. That way, if someone is wacko bongo, they will go quietly. Wacko bongo isn't a term we use in my abnormal psych class, but I knew what she meant. We're turning your position to tenure track, Tom Tom, the dean said, but keep it under your hat. 
I will, Regina, I said, but all the time I was thinking, which hat? Yes, the faculty handbook requires search committees to include a non-departmental member. That's so a department doesn't get inbred over time. As you know, our English department passed that point long ago. Hence the biology department's jibe that English is where recessive genes go to die. <laughs> In any event, I had a broader perspective on the candidates than people who had devoted their lives to a single 10 or 20 years of British publishing activity. Also, Dean Rizzo thought that my expertise might save the college the embarrassment of litigation. The Regional Human Rights Commission often champions the mentally ill, especially when those unfortunates have been given tenure-track positions by institutions of higher education. Our job was to winnow 286 applications to 20, and then select two finalists to come to campus for an interview. The job description indicated the college wanted in one body a poet in residence and a director of composition. But the poet part was just a memorial for the college's late and famous poet, William Rhinestone Crater. Professor Crater's recent death had diminished the academic value of his National Book Award, although it made little difference in his classroom demeanor. Not that the rest of the English department noticed. They were staggering toward the end of every semester under stacks of composition essays, yearning for dreamlike seminars with four or five involuted protégés, murmuring about the silver poets or Foucaultian ethics. Naturally, they plotted to assign consciousness and the composition program to the new poet. Of course I can stay on topic. What makes you think I'm not? You remember my lecture on Hemingway when I took the podium in a safari suit of light cotton canvas and sturdy boots, shaking an elephant gun, and laid bare the seductive female soul of the hypermasculine male. Afterward, several of you told me you'd never realized that Hemingway was all girl, a model for young women everywhere. So keep your shirt on. There are gender complications in this world, some of them involving poets, that your philosophy has yet to dream of. The job description asked for a PhD. We could have been more specific. We got applications from people who had discovered extrasolar planets, from geneticists who had worked on bioweapons, South Vietnamese colonels, mortgage bankers, a dean of the University of Sarajevo Business School whose elegant formal English was better than that of any of us on the committee. These we put aside. We put aside applications on the brittle letterhead of extinct liberal arts colleges. We rejected anyone claiming to be under remote control, even though Professor Jarsky, chair of both the English department and the search committee, last fall hired two students to wrap his house in chicken wire in order to keep out mind-altering microwaves coming from UFOs.
We put aside chapbooks, poems written on envelopes, poems whose margins held the unkind marks of poetry editors, poems clipped from magazines with the words author, me, written on them in ballpoint. We put aside envelopes containing dried leaves, dried blood, dried pepperoni, and when we saw evidence of them, dried tears. We put aside signed and numbered letterpress broadsheets. The finalists all had a few poems in print. Poets with books had not made the cut because Professor Jarsky said having a book out could make a director of composition run uneasily in the harness, as it were. Does this sound cruel? By then, we were cruel. We had sent the dossiers of 266 people to the industrial strength shredder on the garden level of this building. Lift a folder, note the cover letters, insistence that its author is a good fit for our institution, leaf through the nicely distanced letters of recommendation, find the divorce in the Vita, the lost year, the lost child, the lost hope, the exact moment when the PhD took the life savings. Put aside the crayon sheets from the mental hospitals. Put aside the young fathers with pregnant working wives, the single mothers, the brilliant addicts, the attorneys and physicians wishing to reclaim lives from careers, the old people wanting one more position before retirement. Reject the stupid and their quaint paragraphs. Reject the angry. They're used to it. Reject the ones who included the studio photos of their studio photos for their unconscious narcissism. Reject the ones without photos on the off chance that they might be deformed. Reject the ones whose surname is the same as the bully who stole your lunch money. You've got 286 applicants and one job. Then Professor Jarsky at dossier 275 we toasted the milestone with a bottle of fine old bourbon I brought over for the occasion, said that these were people still trying to become complete human beings. Grading composition essays will make them human, I asked. I looked at the assembled professors of the English department who all appeared to have spent a long and brutal night tending the illiterate. They looked back at me with a complete lack of affect. No, I shouted, we start as human beings and end up as sadistic zombies. We take the sudden singular beauty of once hidden hopes to the shredder. Silence. Professor Jarsky finally looked at me over his bifocals. Tom, Tom, he said, one would be more inclined to take you seriously if you weren't dressed as the Easter Bunny. In our last meeting, we looked at our 20 survivors. 19 were zombies. Someone had given them extract of Datura, buried them for a week, dug them up, cleaned them off, and told them they were di director of composition material. 19 cover letters said the same thing. Poetry could wait. What was really exciting was making sure that our college had a state-of-the-art composition program. What we got here, I told the committee, is mind control. I had Professor Jarsky's attention. What are the odds, I asked him, a half million words in the language and all the people we like use these words? 
Poetry can wait. I was wearing a buckskin shirt and pants and a coonskin cap. That morning, wondering what to wear, I thought of Davy Crockett at the Alamo where there weren't any survivors either. And then I started crying. I was remembering my mother and how young she was in her pictures and how much poetry meant to her and how full of hope we both must have been at the beginning of our life together. Regina Rizzo took me by the arm and led me out of the committee room and down the hall into her office. As we know, she is a woman of amplitude and how I yearned at that moment to rest my head against her amplitudinous bosom, test, rest my hand upon her amplitudinous hip. I'm not being rude. Most of you were there for the Russ Meyer films I showed during my Psychology of the Mythic Feminine course. You all brought popcorn. <laughs> Several of you remarked on Dean Rizzo's resemblance to a well-aged kitten Natividad. Not that the real Kitty Christmas has aged so well. I don't know why some people age well and some people don't, except when methamphetamine is involved, and then you know. <laughs> but let me say, if it's not too rude, that Dean Regina Rizzo brings a certain substance to the feminine. We sat on the couch in her office, and Regina put her hand on my shoulder and said, Tom, Tom, you see too much. You feel too much. You understand too much. I know, I said, and my tears, which had stopped, again rolled down my face. Not everyone has your commitment to truth, she said. It's a burden, I said. In this profession, we love too much, she took my hand. We love knowledge, we love discovery, we love working with young minds, making them strong and clear. Then we end up arguing points of order, writing budgets, presiding over faculty meetings, supporting spouses who sit all day in front of the TV, drinking beer. She was projecting. I don't have a spouse, and I've never written a budget. But can you say when a person's stroking the tail of your coonskin cap and is sitting close to you on a couch, that when she's talking about her, you, she's really talking about herself? I didn't know then that her marriage was a cage fight. I had met her husband at the new faculty reception last fall. On that occasion, he drank too much. If he's Dean Rizzo's age, he's not aging well. Regina, I said, what can we do? Her response was to kiss me on the lips, a long kiss that ended abruptly when Professor Jarsky walked into the office. I sat up straight on the couch. Dean Rizzo stopped petting my coonskin. <laughs> the committee has voted, he said. He frowned. Your outburst swayed some of them to the single applicant who claims that poetry still matters. It was true. Our youngest candidate, a recent graduate of a prestigious East Coast University, had described herself as a poet first and a teacher second. Her application included an epic poem titled, The Death of Hope. It opened with the description of a beautiful and peaceful people rising out of the green earth to find rivers full of fish, forests full of deer, a sun that blessed them with limpid light. 
Fifty stanzas later, a crystalline image recorded the murder of the last of those people in a smog-tinted Walmart parking lot. I'm sure I was the only one who read it, read it through. Nobody else mentioned its relentless plod toward doom. None of her references mentioned it either. Her name was Barbie, with an I. 26 years old, she had two golden retrievers, and she wanted to live in a dorm with them and be a kind older sister to the students. She volunteered to coach field hockey. Not what you would expect of the author of The Death of Hope, but genius always surprises. Otherwise, it wouldn't be genius. We invited the other finalist first. He was an intense 35-year-old whose dissertation praised the efficacy of peer editing in composition classes as a method of reducing professorial workload. Sonder commandos in the classroom, I called it. His three published poems were available upon request. They were only a hobby with him, what he used to fill his time when he wasn't designing new pedagogic techniques. I refused to go to his demonstration lecture for fear he'd jump over the rows of seats and bite me and I'd become a zombie too. <laughs> Those attending his lecture said he demonstrated evident enthusiasm for our institution. Afterward, Professor Jarsky dropped him at the airport. He picked up Barbie at the same time, an operation suited to a younger man as it required a dash from the departure gates to the arrival lounge. I didn't attend Barbie's lecture either, even though I was in the room the next morning when she walked in wearing a loose baby blue tracksuit of poly pro bunting. Having come, she announced directly from the college's weight room where she had extended her unbroken string of daily workouts to 1,308. She wore her golden blonde hair and a page boy, except she had twisted it up in two little ponytails that shot out over her large ears. Her eyes were the blue of her polypro, her face elfin. Why did I rush out of the room before she began? Not because she announced her lecture was about teaching grammar. It was, some of you have seen my small collection of original Maxfield Parrish prints in Professor Valtzmeret's living room where I took down his bowling photos and those divinity school diplomas to get the wall space. Then you understand that what has been derided as my anxious fetish for the androgyne could be potentiated by the appearance of Barbie in bunting. As it happened, Barbie and I were wearing similar outfits. I had on my silver New Balance cross trainers and black tights and a long-bodied black silk turtleneck that stopped just below my sex. I also had on black vinyl gloves and a black nylon balaclava and dark aviator glasses and a wide rhinestone-studded belt. We could have been twins. Then, psychotic break or religious experience? I was not in a classroom waiting for a perfunctory and doomed demonstration lecture. Instead, I waited in the pre-dawn darkness outside Barbie's room and watched her come down the steps with her golden retrievers, and then our run together, laughing and talking up the hill to the campus forest, 
down and around the athletic fields, a shared kiss, the sudden sunrise like a distant muted bomb, the sprint to the weight room where we pumped iron, pumped iron, surrounded by the half-naked football team doing two-a-days and the dogs galloping on the treadmills beside us. I ran out of the room. Barbie hadn't begun lecturing yet, and somewhere in the middle of the campus forest, slaloming between tree trunks, I realized the college had to hire Barbie. My thighs were electric, pumping against spandex, thrusting blood to my heart and through my lungs, and I was alive, not alone, finally part of something greater than myself. I nearly ran over Professor Jarsky when I came out of the weight room. Save my life, I said, hire her. You weren't even there, he shook his head. I offered the other candidate the job halfway through her talk. So poetry can wait, I said. I'm appalled. William Rhinestone Crater is appalled, too, wherever he is. He shrugged. She lectured on the uses of commas, he said. What is it you young people say? A system of grammar only exists to oppress? That's the postmodern comparative lit people, I said. I'm psychology. Anyway, he said, she oppressed us all for 45 minutes. You're lucky you left. He told me to take her to dinner. That was a surprise. Professor Jarsky seldom misses a meal when the college is paying the bill. But while hooking up Christmas decorations, he had electrified the chicken wire covering his house. Before the breaker blew, the section over his home office had glowed red and collapsed. He had to make repairs ahead of the next burst of microwaves from the arachnid people of Ganymede. I was just leaving my office when Dean Rizzo ran down the hall and put her hand on my arm. Jarsky told me you're taking our second candidate out to dinner, she said. The consolation dinner, yes. Be careful, Tom Tom, she said. I finally got calls back from her references. She broke up the marriage of two of the professors on her thesis committee. Broke up affairs, and she threatened to sue the university when it all came out in the open. That's terrible, I said. I locked my office door. I would never be a party to breaking up a marriage. Dean Rizzo let go of my arm. She looked as if she had finally recognized me as a separate person. A silence grew between us. Then she gave me a tight, unhappy smile and walked away. I picked up Barbie in the lobby of the Best Western next to the campus. I was wearing tan chinos, a light blue Oxford cloth button-down shirt, a pale yellow tie, a brown camel's hair blazer, and cordovan penny loafers with bright pennies peeking from their insteps. Barbie wore penny loafers too, without the pennies. She wore a brown tweed skirt and a yellow Shetland sweater over a white blouse. Her page boy was perfect. I immediately saw what I would have seen that morning had I not had a dream of golden retrievers against baby bunting blue. Her collarbones in high relief, her knees, the tendon-like muscles in her calves, the concavity below her ribs and above an abdomen the size and shape of a muskmelon, 
a scoliotic spine, fine brown hair on her neck and cheeks, the intent blue gaze of her eyes that up close made her look like a lemur. I took her to Chez Gigi's, the most expensive restaurant in town, even though Professor Jarsky had told me not to blow the search budget. After the wine had been poured, I couldn't stand it any longer. They're hiring the other guy, I said. She stared into her wine glass. This always happens to me, she said. I want something, it goes away. I want something badly, it goes away quickly. I wanted them to hire you, I said. That's why it's just you and me here, isn't it? Nobody wanted to have eye contact with me, like I'm dead. I wanted to tell her that if she had been dead, we would have hired her. Our food came, and she picked at her plate in silence. They found out, she said. Found out what? That the poem I sent is by William Rhinestone Crater. It won prizes. I knew I didn't have a chance for the job. I thought, what the hell, you want a poem? I'll give you a poem. Then I got the call, and then I knew. Maybe it was the last chance I had to get well, to go someplace and start life over. My therapist says I'll die if I don't start eating. She smiled. But that's true of everybody, isn't it? Nobody found you out, I said. You had William Rhinestone Crater here, and nobody in the department had read his work? I'm in psychology, I said. She pushed her plate away and drained her wine glass. It was a dark poem, I said, not like you. Dark, she said. She looked at her plate and then across the room. In summer, we would have had hours of daylight left. But I could see our reflections in the black mirrors of the restaurant windows, punctured here and there by headlights that drifted by outside. She pushed her plate away. I don't much like food, she said. I should tell you that I don't much like teaching either. I don't like students. I don't like commas or apostrophes or dependent clauses. Then she said, about the only thing I like in the whole world is a well-aged single malt. Not much later, I unlocked the door to Professor Veltschmerz's basement and led Barbie down the stairs. Black widow webs hung in high corners and a layer of dryer lint covered every horizontal surface. A big leather chair held the cracked imprint of Professor Veltschmerz's body. Hundreds of bottles lined the shelves along one side of the room. Take whatever you want, I said. Barbie picked a bottle from the shelf opened it, tipped it to her mouth, and did a trick with her throat. When the bottle came down, a quarter of it was gone. Falls off a little at the back of the tongue, she said, and shattered the bottle against the wall. Try this one, I said, and handed her a second bottle. She opened it, drank, and shook her head. Not much better, she said. She smashed it against the wall, too, and turned to me. What do you think of that, she said. I took two bottles from the shelves, handed them to her, and dropped them onto the floor just as she reached for them. Shards of glass bounced off our ankles. This isn't your house, is it, she said. Not really, I said. She turned away, reached her arm into a high shelf, and swept everything off it, 
and then kicked at the glass around her feet. Damn you and your stupid little college, she said. I thought she had cut herself, but she had only sliced open the side of a penny loafer. When she started another kick, I grabbed her shoulders and said, I don't think you even like scotch. I don't think you like anything. Oh, Tom, Tom, she said, I like you. She closed her eyes and sagged against me. I held her up. It was like holding an armful of corn stalks. You know, the intense young man to whom we offered the job called and said he had had an offer for more money at a better college. His words, not mine. You know, Professor Jarsky refused to go through another search and offered the job to Barbie over Dean Rizzo's objections. And you know, Barbie accepted. And when Dean Rizzo questioned her scholarship, Barbie threatened to sue if she didn't get the job because she, Barbie, had had sex with a member of the search committee. What you don't know is that after Barbie passed out, I lifted her into my arms and carried her up the stairs and put her on the couch in front of Professor Veltsmert's giant wall-sized TV. I sat in a chair next to the couch and turned on the Nature Channel, which was showing a film about lions and what lions do when they're not killing things. There was a lot of sex in it, cat sex. I remembered the DVDs I'd found taped to the bottom of Professor Veltsmert's box springs. And you know how difficult it is to get Russ Meyer's films these days. You'll recognize the pedagogic debt last fall's course owes our religion department. So I put Kitten Natividad in her see-through bathtub, working her big scrub brush to the tune of Splish Splash, I was taking a bath. I'm sure you've all seen it. But I went to sleep in the middle of it. It was getting late. I'd had wine with dinner. When I awoke, Barbie had taken off all her clothes and was standing over me. Her skin was so white it was blue. The fine hair I had noticed on her neck and face covered the rest of her body. She had no breasts, and her eyes were huge and glittering, her mouth wide, and I thought that this is what my mother must have looked like just before she died, when she had stopped eating and was living on the white powder she cooked up on the kitchen stove. I was four years old again, and all alone and in the dark, and I huddled away from Barbie and kicked at her and screamed. A little while later, I heard over the pound, pound of my own heart the sound of vomiting in the bathroom. I sank away from that sound, down and down into the chair and down further into its cushions and springs and finally down into a giant dark room full of racks and racks of clothes, fur and silk and rough wool, corduroy and satin and slick sheer nylon and leather and gabardine and denim, smelling of perfume and cigarette smoke and wet, dank sweat and my own sweet, soft breath. Barbie was gone when I awoke. I did not have sex with that woman. I may have had sex with her clothes. <laughs> Professor Jarsky doesn't think she's a woman at all. He thinks she's a non-DNA life form from Tau Ceti, one of, but one of the good ones who are here to save the planet. So, next September, Barbie will be our director of composition, living in one of the dorm apartments. Golden retrievers will roam the campus, and we're all going to have to learn when to 
and when not to use commas. I'm not going anywhere either. An hour ago in the dean's office, I signed a contract to teach next year. Regina expressed gratitude for my service to the college in the face of a traumatic experience of interpersonal harassment. I borrowed her telephone to call my caseworker at the Human Rights Commission and said the college and I had resolved our misunderstanding and my unique value to the institution had been recognized. I know the more conventional of you will find my actions sadly done. And I know I'll have to find another place to stay, even if Professor Veltsmerz decides to stay in Thailand. And I think he should. But now that you have heard my side of things, you see that there's very little I could have done differently. All right, everybody, thanks, John. That was fantastic. Very reminiscent of some of my favorite Ron Carlson characters who are kind of absurd and honest and lay their hearts bare on the page. So um, we could ask a few questions if you can see the audience all right out there. If people have questions about the story, about being an Idaho writer. Um, I might start with the notion of, uh, I don't know, you, you've taught at universities over the last I don't know, 20 years or so, probably. And you're teaching with College of Idaho still, and you used very specific characters to get at larger issues within like English departments. I'm familiar with this myself, which, you know, I was like, okay, what is the value of like, creative writing, which we are all out here to see, you know, stories and hear poetry and, you know, sort of live outside of uh, the comma, if you will. So what is your, I don't know, what were you trying to do with that story on that level? I was hoping for an easier question than Laura got. Um, uh, as I said, these were all dramatic monologues. Um, there are eight other characters in that book, and I hope they're relatively distinct from one another. Um, but what I was trying to do with this story was um, to expose some of the inhumanity of our current system of higher education where we're using uh, grad students as slaves and um, treating them really badly. Uh, we're sucking people into grad school when we know there's the chance in hell that they'll ever get a job and we're taking their money and that's wrong. So that was one of the motives behind writing this piece. The other was I'm very fascinated by the histrionic uh, personality and um, and what happens when your own thoughts begin to carry uh, not just uh, what you're thinking but actually who you are into realms that are that are uncharted um, I, I very much liked this character even though I think he's kind of an evil little shit but um, I, I thought he was the one who kept pulling the surface off things and exposing what was underneath it. He's a, he's a truth teller, he's a trickster, he's a very sick and angry young man, but he's nonetheless someone that we need to value as a, uh, a human being and as a member of our community. Uh, so I, I let him have his job back. Uh, 
I should clarify one thing. I'm, I'm not um, uh, associated with the College of Idaho in the classroom. I'm their writer at large, which should um, bring to mind a, an orange jumpsuit stuffed in a uh, trash can someplace. Um, anyway, other questions? Uh, have I? Yes. So I'm surprised. You just said you thought that one character was in your mind kind of an evil man? He has an element of malice, yes. Well, he keeps embarrassing people, and he keeps, he keeps recalling things they did that don't fit in this very somber and judicial committee meeting. Um, so he's, he's kind of like the uh, person at the family reunion who reminds everybody that Uncle Ernie's still in the basement and will get his dinner later, you know. Um, but uh, other than that, um, I... I saw him as someone who had been very damaged by his early upbringing, and and that was working it out in his in his life and in his relations with other people. Have I stunned you all into sil silence? I I I like that. Um, all right. Well, if there are no more questions, thank you very much. Thanks, John. And I would kind of concur with Patrick. I, I liked him maybe more than you did, which I guess is, you know, one of the best things about reading or hearing, hearing fiction. Um, you get to make your own judgments on the character. And anyway, well, thanks so much for showing up tonight. It's a fantastic crowd. Once again, we'll be here um, a month from now, approximately the 8th of September, the second Monday. Um, and yeah, I think that should do it. Fantastic, and thanks Radio Boise, thanks Modern, thanks Kevin and Laura and John, and have a good night. This has been Campfire Stories, recorded live from the Modern Hotel and produced by Radio Boise. Thanks for listening.